Well, good morning again. If you're visiting with us, we are in the process of uh, doing a series called The Story. It's 31 weeks. We started in Genesis. We're going all the way to the book of Revelation. And today is installment 14. And uh, we are reading from 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. So let's stand together. And uh, I'm going to be reading the blue. And you're going to be reading the white. And this is what it says. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people? he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people, and serve them and give them a favorable answer. They will always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice that the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who were serving him. And he asked him, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke, of your, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men, so the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the words the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. So the Israelites went home. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Well done. Let's pray. Father, we pause again to just acknowledge your generosity, your graciousness, your extravagance in what you did in, through, and is Jesus Christ. And for the Holy Spirit that, as we said earlier, takes what you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible, available, applicable in our lives. And we ask that that same Holy Spirit would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand. But as we leave this building, this facility, this property, and go out into our families, our lives, our homes, 
into the schools where we get our education in our workplaces, Lord, where we get our recreation and where we get our services, that the same Holy Spirit would enable us, equip us, Lord, to live out what it means to be Christ followers, to be the disciples of Jesus, to be Christians, and to do so in tangible, physical, and meaningful ways. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his name's sake. Amen. Why don't you be seated? A kingdom torn in two. Now, when I mention these names to you, I want to know how many of you know who I'm talking about. The Hatfields and the McCoys. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. I went through our office and I discovered that everybody over 40 knows who they are or have some idea. Those between 25 and 30, they have some idea and those 25 and under had no idea. So here is who the Hatfield and the McCoys are. They are two families that feuded for 140 years, and this is what they feuded over. Asa McCoy was coming home from the Civil War in 1893, and he was murdered. And one of the Hatfield boys was blamed for murdering him, but it was discovered after that he was actually, the one that was blamed was actually home in bed sick and couldn't have done it. That was the first offense. The second offense was that 13 years later, there was a big dispute about the ownership of a pig. And that created 140 years of dispute. Now, our text this morning is about a dispute that has lasted, or lasted rather, more than five centuries. And it was over a lot more and a lot more serious than the ownership of a pig. Now, this is the story before the story. This is the story before our text, a little background. The question is, who is Rehoboam and who is Jeroboam and who didn't have the sense to be more creative in naming these people? That's not our point. Well, Rehoboam is pretty straightforward. Rehoboam is the son of King Solomon, and he is heir to the throne after Solomon dies, and his story is pretty straightforward. Jeroboam's story is a little bit different and a little bit more complicated. Now, his story is told to us in 1 Kings chapter 11, 27 to 40. But we read these verses in chapter 28, or these things, that, uh, that Jeroboam was an up-and-comer. He was the best and the brightest, and King Solomon caught notice of him and, and made him to be a part of his building campaigns. Now, but something else happened to Jeroboam that sort of helps create the context for our text and our story this morning. Jeroboam is leaving Jerusalem to go to a construction site, and he is met by the prophet Ahijah, who is the high priest or the prophet of Shiloh. Ahijah the prophet is wearing this brand new coat. He takes it off, he rips it in 12 pieces, he gives pieces to Jeroboam to represent Israel, the ten tribes, and he keeps two pieces for himself to represent Judah and Benjamin and God's promise to David. 
Now, the rationale for this, of why God is doing this, is given to us in 1 Kings chapter 11, 33. And the reason why is because Solomon has been unfaithful, and rather than being faithful to God, he has served the disgusting gods of the foreign nations. And this is God's rationale. Now, God has a plan. But Jeroboam is overambitious. Jeroboam wants the position. And so he takes matters into his own hands and makes a move to take the kingdom from Solomon. It is a coup d'etat. The problem is, it tells us in 1 Kings chapter eleven twenty six that Jeroboam rebelled against King Solomon. And then we're told in verse 40 that Solomon actually sought to kill Jeroboam and Jeroboam had to hightail it down to Egypt to escape his death. Now, so Jeroboam sort of stages a coup d'etat, but it is a coup that has failed. And the reason why it failed, because of three things. First of all, is that, first of all, it was outside of God's timing. Secondly, Jeroboam wanted to do it his way rather than God's way. And the result of that, thirdly, is that it caused him to have to run for his life. But a little more context before we move on. There's also this. We are told in 1 Kings chapter 11, 37 to 39, that God's promise to Jeroboam was outstanding. And I want to read it to you. This is what it says. God says to Jeroboam, you will rule over all that your heart desires. You will be king over Israel. If you do whatever I command you and walk in obedience to me and do what is right in my eyes by obeying my decrees and commands, as David, my servant, did, I will be with you. I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David and will give Israel to you. I will humble David's descendants because of this, but not forever. But we know how it is when we take matters into our own hands. We know how it is when we run ahead of God and we do things our way instead of God's way. And when we do that, we miss out on God's plan Or to put it another way, we miss out on God's best for us. And this is what's happened to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam, sadly, turns out like all the rest, only worse. And we read these words in chapter 12, verses 28 to 33, that he set up two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel. He established people who were priests, who were not intended to be priests. And he established festivals that were never intended to be festivals. And we are told in verse 33, he did all of this of his own choosing. And he caused Israel to sin greatly. Now that brings us then to our story. 
And our story is about Israel's family nation divided, a family feud, if you will. When Rehoboam, or rather when Jeroboam hears that Solomon is dead and his life is no longer in risk, he comes home for Rehoboam's inauguration. And Jeroboam puts a challenge to Rehoboam and he says to him, and here's the deal, he says to him, will you be as harsh with us as your father was or you, will you bring relief? Now, the truth about Solomon, we talked about Solomon last week, that he was an incredible guy, but of course we know that he went off the rails as well, and the truth is that he, while he built a lot of stuff and Israel was wealthy and he was wealthier than every, any king that ever lived comparatively, the truth is that the people were incredibly burdened by Solomon's appetite. Rehoboam asks Jeroboam and the gang gathered with him if he can have three days to consult. So he takes three days and he consults with the elders and then he consults with his buddies, with the guys that he grew up with. And Rehoboam makes a rookie mistake. He rejects the advice of the elders and he embraces the advice of the young man who he grew up with and that who now serve him. If all we ever do is listen to the people of our own age, and that applies to whether we are older or whether we are younger, if all we ever do is listen to the people of our own age and to the people who think like us and to the people that we know will tell us what we want to hear, who will agree with us, then we will miss out on incredible advantages that would have otherwise we would have benefited from. Jesus said this. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 52, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now what that tells us is this, that there are treasures that are old, but there are also treasures that are new. There are many things that the older set can learn from the younger set. There are many things that the younger set can learn from the older set. We need people in our lives who will tell us the truth, who will speak truth to us. Now, in order to benefit from the advice of the elders in our text, in order to benefit from that, We need to be a servant. We have to take a servant posture. You and I must take a servant attitude. Now, it takes a servant to listen to those that are different from us. It takes a servant attitude to listen to people 
who do not think like we think. It takes a servant posture to listen to people who are not going to say what we want to hear. And first of all, honesty and truth may be hard to hear. And it may wound us a little, but we need to hear it. And in the end, I think that honesty and truth will save us a lot, maybe even a lifetime of pain. Ironically, this is the advice of none other than King Solomon in Proverbs, where he writes, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I like something that Cardinal Robert Sarah said. He said, we are, called not, we are called to be the salt of the earth, not the sugar of the earth. Sometimes being a friend means speaking the hard truth. And sometimes being a friend means listening to the hard truth. I love St. Augustine. St. Augustine said in one of his sermons, in this life, virtue consists of loving what must be loved. Knowing how to choose it is prudence. Not letting oneself be distracted by seductive powers is temperance. And not letting oneself be led astray by pride is justice. Now, there are some obvious, other obvious lessons for us to learn in this text. The first one is, we need to be careful who we listen to. Now, none of us can tell the motives of other people. It's, we don't have that ability. I mean, just think about it. These guys, these guys that Rehoboam grew up with, I mean, just think of it. Are they really going to tell Rehoboam what he needs to hear? Probably not, because the cost is going to be too high for them. And I think that there's a general rule for us. Now, a lot of people, including our friends and family, are sometimes inclined to tell us what we want to hear. Now, I know that some of you are going to push back and say, well, sometimes family and friends tell uh, family and friends what they need to hear. That's true, but most times, most times it is proven that we tell our family and our friends what we generally want them to hear. In other words, we want to appease or please our friends rather than drive a potential wedge in our relationship. So first of all, we need to be careful who we listen to. Number two is that what goes around comes around. It's the boomerang effect. You ready for this? Put your seatbelt on. You and I cannot be divisive or bitter and expect that those things are not going to come back on our lives. We are fooling ourselves. Matter of fact, Jesus says, in Matthew's gospel, he says that we set the standard and the tone for how we are going to be dealt with, how we are going to be judged by how we judge other people. 
The paraphrase, the Todd Manuel paraphrase is this, that exactly how I treat Stuart Glass is exactly how God is going to treat me. That's the way that rolls. And so if I'm divisive, then I can guarantee you that divisiveness is going to come to my life and to my family and to whatever it is that I do. Because there's this thing called the law of the harvest. There's this thing called the law, the iron law of the universe, and it's this. We reap what we sow. Galatians 6 and 7 tells us not to be deceived because a person reaps what they sow. And this is true. And you and I should not expect that we should be exempt. And the last thing is I think that instead of drawing lines we may want to consider drawing circles. I've got this really bad map that Scott's going to give me, Pastor Scott's going to give me some static about tomorrow. This is a map. The circle represents the Israel's nation family as a whole. That's the whole nation, the whole family. And the circle will not be broken. The black dotted line represents the division between the north and the south for 530 years. Now, does this picture not describe as well for us marriages and families and friendships and partnerships, and churches, and yes, nations. As servants, as servants, we draw circles instead of lines. Uh, there's an old poem by um, Irwin, uh, Edwin Markham that goes like this. He drew a circle that shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to float. But love and I had the wit to win. He, we drew a circle that took him in. Then somebody came along and adapted this and put it in sort of Christian terms and put it this way. Some draw a circle that shuts people out, race and position or what they float. But Christ in love seeks them all to win. He draws a circle that takes them in. But, being a servant sometimes can be very difficult. It's not always easy doing what the elder said, be a servant. That's not always easy. I mean, it sounds great, right? It sounds great, you know, we're servants. But you know when it's not great? is when people actually treat us like servants. It may be difficult being a servant, but the alternative is incredibly bleak. And in this case, and in our text, it's division, which leads us to this long view. The family feud in Israel's family nation, in Jacob's nation family, 
happened in 930 BC and it lasted for 530 years. Ten tribes went north and two tribes split and went south. And like all division, there is a generational effect. 1 Kings chapter 14.30 says that for the rest of their lives, there was war between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And it didn't stop there. It actually moves forward into the next generation of kings. 1 Kings 15.6 tells us. How many examples do we need before we get the point? The message. I mean, do, do we actually think that it's any different for us? Listen to the words of Jesus again. He says in Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, he says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that, king, that house cannot stand. Now, Jesus, in the context, is talking about the house of Satan, actually. But house can be used in a number of different configurations. House can literally be my house, our house. It can be your house, your home, your marriage, your family. The rivalry between parents and children and children and parents. The rivalry between siblings, adult siblings. It can also refer to this house, the household of God, a church. And certainly, to goodness, we don't need many more examples of churches that have split. A house can represent a partnership. It can represent a friendship. And in our case in the text, it represents a family. A nation. Now, there are plenty of external outside forces that threaten our unity and our stability. And I'm not talking about Glad Tidings Church. That's true for us. But I'm talking probably more about our personal lives, mine and yours. There are plenty of outside forces that threaten the unity and the stability of our lives. And once a house turns in on itself... It isn't long before it begins to crumble. And there's this, the angst of division, the anxiety, the dread, the despair that churns our stomachs, that robs us of our joy, that ruins marriages and families, that undermines a church's witness in its community. It destroys friendships and partnerships and shatters hopes and dreams, and it crushes the human spirit and quenches the spirit of God. But there's also this. You ready? Division is seldom one-sided. Baby, it takes two to make it. It takes two to break it. 
and you ask my wife. Just kidding, do not ask my wife. <laughs> Division is seldom one-sided. We have to own our part. You and I have to woman up or man up and take responsibility for the part we play in division. And why would we not? I mean, we already know the alternative is, is bleak, that division can last for decades and it can last for a lifetime of pain. But why wouldn't we humble ourselves before our spouses and our children and our workmates and our brothers and sisters in Christ? And why wouldn't we humble ourselves and just own our stuff? If I was on the street, I would say to own our crap, but I'm not allowed to say that in the pulpit, sorry. But we need to humble ourselves and own our responsibility. Why wouldn't we seek forgiveness? Why would we not seek restoration and reconciliation knowing that the alternative is incredibly bleak? Life is too long or too short to live with the angst of division. On June 14, 2003, June 14, 2003, Bo and Ron McCoy and Rayo Hatfield declared an official truth between the Hatfields and the McCoys. 140 years before that, the fight first broke out. The document was signed by 60 descendants on either side, on both families, and even the governors of Kentucky and West Virginia signed the proclamation declaring June 14th, Hatfield and McCoy Reconciliation Day. Rayo Hatfield said that he wanted to show this, wanted to show that if these two families, our two families, could reach an accord, others could also. Ron McCoy said that up until this point, the Hatfields and the McCoys had represented feuding and fighting by signing this document. Hopefully, people would realize that division is not the final chapter. And the reality is division does not have to be the final word. It does not. Just like darkness is never the final word, dawn is always the final word. Just as death is never the final word in the kingdom of God, resurrection has the final word. Division does not have to be the final word. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. But the opposite is true as well. A house united can withstand anything. And you know Jesus' prayer for us, right? Jesus' prayer for us was that we would be united. That we would be one. Not just as his family, but in our individual families. Even in our individual lives that there would be wholeness, 
that there would be unity and stability. I want you to close your eyes for a moment. I wanted to do a call for healing today, but we don't have the time, unfortunately. Because there are a number of people, and while well, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, just for a moment, there are a number of people that need prayer. Kim Van Ship, that's um, Bill and Carrie's uh, daughter-in-law, was diagnosed this week with multiple sclerosis. Ruth Lowry has had eye surgery this week. Kim Blanchett is going for surgery tomorrow. Pierre Dupuy is going on the 17th. Paulette Richardson on the 22nd. We want to pray for Ron and his wife Maya for the loss of, their, of Maya's brother John. The funeral was yesterday. And, and doctors John and Leanne Wijanarko's son-in-law's father passed away last week. We want to pray for Uchi. We want to pray for Steve Album. We want to pray for Caesar. And there are others and others and others. And I thought today would be a great day to do a healing line. But God knows. God knows. I want you just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed in a moment of privacy, how many of you need the healing of God in your body? Would you raise your hand? Just raise your hand for a moment. Just stick it up there nice and high. Father, with hands uplifted, most, if not all, of these people would have come forward today to be anointed and prayed for, for healing. But Father, you are sovereign and omnipotent and omnipresent. And Lord, we ask today that the healing hand of Jesus would attend unto every life whose hand is extended in the air. We ask this in Jesus' name. Put your hands down for a moment. But maybe our healing today involves reconciliation. And so be it. So all around the room with all of our eyes closed, just for a privacy, how many of you in this room that healing would involve reconciliation of some sort at some level? Would you raise your hand? Nice and high, don't be ashamed. We're just broken people. Heavenly Father, for every hand that is raised, and Father, for the hands that are not raised, and for the hands, Lord, that are raised online, you see them in their homes, in their rooms. And you see the hands in this room. And Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that healing would be a reality because you have made it so in Jesus Christ. And so we ask this now in his name and for his name's sake. Amen.